Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Schiller. Final stop on my month-long trip, uh, and I'm recording in a hotel room in Hong Kong. Uh, we're leaving to come back to Berlin tonight, so you'll have me on a proper microphone again soon. There's also a fan whirring away in the background that I can't seem to turn off. It's annoying me, as it may be annoying you as much, so I do apologize for that. But uh, hopefully I'll be able to filter it out, and you won't even know what I'm talking about, which would be ideal. Packed show this week. I have quite a few links I want to share with you. And then an interview with Hayden Barnes of uh, Whitewater uh, and Penguin. A new Linux distribution optimized for the uh, Windows uh, Linux subsystem, which uh, is <laughs> a very technical topic. Uh, any of you who are Windows users or Linux users and know about uh, Microsoft's efforts to include Linux runtimes in Windows now, um, this company have just released Penguin, a, a version of Linux optimized for running under Windows. And it was quite interesting. It's got some interesting features, some useful features, and I had a chat with Hayden about that and some other things. And I will have a hands-on with Penguin itself soon. And I have to wait till I get home and have my Windows machine to be able to do that. So <laughs> soon, I promise. But let's get on to the links. First up, not a new article, but an old one from 2017 on the NN slash G Nielsen Norman Group website, blog. I'm not entirely sure uh, what they call it. From um, Cara Perinis. On the F-shaped pattern of reading, I was doing some research on this pattern recently. Uh, I think it was sparked from a talk I saw at the Write the Docs in Prague last year, so I'm always a bit behind. And this is a pattern that was kind of popularized in about 2006 by Nielsen Norman, actually. Uh, this way that people tend to read articles on the web. This F-shape refers to how people tend to scan headlines and then subheadlines and then bits of structure and just wave their eyes around and attempting to uh, make your content match that pattern. This is an article from two years ago saying that this pattern is probably misunderstood. Maybe it's overrated. Maybe it's not so relevant. Um, and this is something I'm interested in digging more into to see if uh, now our ways we read online content have changed. There's also uh, some discussion on the Z-shaped pattern instead. You can kind of imagine what that would look like. Or is it that uh, web pages have been built so much to match with this pattern that uh, people have kind of stopped following it? It's an interesting. And, but the article actually says it's still relevant and even more so on mobile these days. And especially, I guess, when you factor in responsive design, the way that people maybe used to read on a desktop doesn't necessarily match on mobile because the layouts change quite a bit. But if you don't know what the F-shape pattern is and you work on content-heavy web pages, then I recommend the article uh, to get up to speed on what that means. But then also um, some very good uh, tips right at the bottom, eight tips at the bottom of the article on how to, uh, I guess, how to, to shape your content to match that pattern. Next, on the subject of, I guess, F-shaped patterns and successful web content, another article from Neiman, but this time from Neiman Lab, from Joshua Benton. This is one from the past couple of weeks. This is a post called, The Guardian Actually Makes Money Now. You may or may not know that The Guardian has not actually had a profitable year since 97, 98, I think they say. 
And finally, last year, they actually made money. Again, not a tremendous amount, but enough. They made money. They made an operating profit. I have found The Guardian quite interesting for some time. I mean, it's operated by a foundation. It kind of has uh, a mission to deliver content. They don't have a, a traditional paywall. They rely mostly on memberships and selective advertising. They were very, very early supporters of online media and online journalism and somehow managed to make it work for them, despite not having a paywall. But the interesting thing I find is that when I was younger, living in the UK, The Guardian was somewhat of a joke. It used to be called The Gurniad because it was so full of typos and spelling errors. And somehow it has turned itself around. I'm, I'm guessing probably since that period of the late 90s, that's probably what I'm remembering. Actually, maybe a little bit before. Uh, magazine, satirical magazines like The Private Eye would actually have this column called The Gurniad where they would look intentionally for errors in The Guardian. That's how infamous it was for it. I would like to know if The Private Eye still has that column, actually. Um, so this is an interesting breakdown of how they have done this. Some of this has sadly involved cutting costs. They have laid off staff multiple times. We do have a friend who work for The Guardian and they don't pay massively well. Um, you can get dumped pretty quickly. So there is a cost, of course, to this cost cutting, human cost typically. But uh, that said, the journalism has remained pre reasonably uh, top quality. I guess there are still enough people um, who are out there who are willing to do well-researched, uh, well-founded, well-balanced pieces, even if it means they don't get paid so well. That is the often the problem with uh, people who are willing to do the right thing. Uh, and they will be taken advantage of ever so slightly. And The Guardian has obviously broken a lot of big, important stories over the past few years and has expanded into international editions. The Guardian in Australia was a breath of fresh air to Australia's very, very um, myopic or biopic, I'm not sure if that's the right word, uh, view on the world. Um, with basically two main media companies who run most of the local and national media. So having one additional new voice is also the Saturday paper, which is much smaller uh, to give a more independent perspective. It was very welcome, and that has been very popular there. And it was, always was popular even before the international edition. So again, if you uh, are spruiking up on your F-shaped reading pattern and want to see how maybe you could actually make some money out of your online content in the long-term future, then uh, have another read of this post on Nima Lab to get some ideas about some tactics you could try. And next is an article from 10 years ago, from 2009, by Edward Carr from the 1843 magazine, which is an economist publication called The Last Days of the Polymath. Um, this was in preparation for a, a recording for the second episode I'm going to be doing for my enthusiastic amateur podcast, so you can listen out more of that soon. But a particular person called Carl de Jurassi, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it, um, talking about uh, polymaths, and a lot of people saying that polymaths don't really exist anymore. I don't know if this is really true. Uh, it's hard to really say, I think. Um, and and you, have to, you have to be very specific here, and this is what this article is kind of about separating, I suppose, people who maintain a constant broad series of interests without ever digging deep into things, which kind of describes me a little bit, versus people who dig really deep into a topic, learn it very thoroughly, and then dig deep into another topic. So they get to know multiple topics, but they do one at a time as opposed to kind of 
lightly diving into multiple. And there's a lot of people who kind of match this description in history. Um, people like also Norman Mailer, Philip Roth, Gore Vidal, who are mentioned in this article too. And famous historical ones would be people like uh, Darwin, even uh, Lord Byron, these sorts of people who... And Leonardo da Vinci is a classic one as well, these people who seem to have accomplished so much with their lives. Um, and kind of arguing that this doesn't happen so much anymore. And why is that? Uh, is it something to do with the modern world? Is it something to do with the sort of distractions in the modern world? Is it uh, pressures of the way we have to live our lives now? Why is that? And again, I would point out, I'm not even 100% sure if I agree, but um, it's an interesting and fairly lengthy post about some of these people who the writer considers were the last polymaths of our kind of era and our generation, uh, and some interesting examples from history. And yeah, whether you agree or not, I'm not 100% sure. Um, I think the pressures of social security systems have, have, uh, have increased pressure on this. For example, the article poses that somewhere like France uh, tends to highlight public intellectuals more than countries like America or Britain. So it's harder for people just to kind of make a living or make a life out of just pontificating, I suppose, in certain countries over others. Obviously, it also helps uh, if you come from rich families or something like that. Not all of them do. There are certainly people who manage to be, become knowledgeable in many, many areas without coming from rich backgrounds. I think um, Einstein, I think, is one of these classic examples of that, although I'm not sure if he was a polymath, but maybe you get my point. And university systems these days don't really encourage uh, people to have these broader thoughts anymore. They want specializations. They want kind of degrees and qualifications that can be commercialized, and especially in subjects like philosophy and art, that's not always possible, but sometimes the best ideas can come from the sort of just thinking a lot and letting ideas collide. There's also some criticism in this article of polymaths. I'm not sure what, what the kind of collective word is, because all I can think of saying is polyamory, which is not quite the same, of course. So polymathory, I'm not sure what the actual word should be. Uh, from Mensa, the British kind of club for um, intellectuals, shall we say, their chairman um, is very uh, dismissive of polymaths, saying that you have to specialise. And I think maybe uh, the, the the book by Malcolm Gladwell, where he talks about this 10,000-hour rule, which is controversial in itself now, sort of dismisses that it's possible to be a good polymath. I'm not sure. It, it's it's very, uh, very interesting to know whether there is space fit in the world anymore and how you could survive, how you could survive financially, how you could have your uh, knowledge and your ideas accepted, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, there's space for everyone to have an opinion these days, but um, the, the modern habits make it quite hard to be very, very dedicated to a particular topic all the time. It's an interesting article, and it's a subject I will dive a lot more into in this forthcoming interview, which I will keep you up to date when that is released. On the subject of people who are very singly focused, there's another article here from uh, Nautilus magazine by Amanda Gefter, the man who tried to redeem the world with logic. And this was a really interesting post to me because it feeds into the early stories of computing. This is about someone called Walter Pitts um, from the 1930s, 1940s America. Again, kind of feeding into what we were talking about. He was brought up in 
a poor family in Detroit. And he was a logistician, basically. Um, anyone who's even studied basic uh, mathematics relating to computing knows that logic is a very fundamental part of it. Things like if-else statements, if this, do this, if that, do that. Things like loops, do this whilst this is true, etc., etc. These are very basic constructs to computing. But these theories had to come from somewhere, and um, this was feeding off a lot of um, the practice from people like Turing during the war, who obviously kind of invented some of the first computers, but these computers were very slow because they were uh, not very efficient at running repeated tasks, and repeated tasks require things like logic and loops. Um, and Pitts, along with a handful of other people, uh, Warren McCulloch and a handful of others um, were kind of the people to start theorizing on this and attempt to put it into at least mathematical practice, not necessarily into programming language practice, but lay the ground rules for how this work would be. Um, and this also brought in a potentially more well-known person to the computing industry, that of John von Neumann who, if you read his Wikipedia page, is also described as a polymath. See, I do have some running themes here sometimes. Originally from uh, Budapest in the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the time. Uh, yeah, he, there's a lot of von Neumann architecture is used a lot. He's also one of the early proponents of quantum mechanics, statistical mechanics, self-replicating machines. Uh, I, I do know this name for when I studied computer science. He's a very, very influential figure. And... Um, Pitt worked with him and some others, all at MIT, of course, kind of, well, I guess still um, the preeminent seat for computer science research. This, this article is, is sort of a hard read. It's one of these um, typical uh, stories of, of frustration from these sorts of people who are very um, driven and very maybe socially awkward and want to solve a problem with such dedication that they kind of lose the families around them and friends and uh, things d despite this sort of uh, social awkwardness can get very emotional and people can fall out very easily among about the smallest things. This was also post-prohibition. So uh, ironically, alcoholism became a bit of an issue. They would work late into the night drinking whilst coming up with these uh, fun fundamental ideas of computing. Um, and so it's a fairly sad article, and he actually ends his life kind of you know, not, not particularly uh, positively, shall we say. Um, he basically became, in the late 60s, uh, a pretty full-on alcoholic. He had delirium tremors. Um, he decided after years of working on his PhD, which people are now only just starting to reassemble, um, like people have kind of known his impact on computer science, but without ever having any sort of proof of it, because he set fire to his PhD after many years of working on it, because he just, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, I think, um, probably these days we would describe him as being on the, the, the Asperger's uh, scale, he spent his life trying to follow the logic that he was trying to formulate so much, and that's not how the world really works, that uh, it got very frustrated. Um, I think we see people like this a lot in the computing industry, but it was not necessarily understood so much then. And he died alone in a boarding house in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the late 60s. 
Um, McCulloch also then died four months later. So all these kind of early names that were responsible for creating a lot of the underpinnings of modern computing logic, the, the fundamentals of any programming language these days, not, are not forgotten, but did not exactly end their lives in very positive ways, uh, much of their own um, causation, unfortunately. Um, yeah, so it, it's, it's, not a, it's a sad article, but certainly very interesting to understand some of the, the thought processes that went in to these uh, theories that uh, yeah, are now a fundamental of computer programming. Um, yeah, not, not the most happy story, unfortunately. But if uh, that topic is of interest to you, if you under, understand the importance of these ideas, it's interesting to get um, some insights into the origin stories. I won't say enjoy, but uh, certainly um, become intrigued. Next, a post from the GitHub blog by Brian Clark, although this was widely repurposed and reported uh, in a series of tech blogs around the, the webosphere. Apache Software Foundation joins GitHub open source community. This is interesting. Apache is obviously, the Apache Software Foundation is obviously a big software foundation that hosts many, 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 many important open source projects. But up until a few months back, they were not officially on GitHub. They maintained their own repositories. And this is controversial because GitHub, despite its um, key role in open source software, is not actually open source itself. It's a proprietary commercial product now owned by Microsoft. Microsoft are not the company they used to be, but still, they are Microsoft. They still make one of the, or a handful of the most successful proprietary applications in the world, uh, despite their positive moves towards embracing open source, that is still how they make money. So a lot of the Apache Software Foundation community are not particularly happy about this uh, decision. This has been in progress for quite some time. They have been trialing it and testing it and doing um, prototypes and uh, kind of dual pushing to repositories, I guess. But still, now everything is officially there. And of course, this means that these projects get more exposure to potential developers. This is one of the reasons to move to GitHub. I have tried putting repositories on GitLab uh, out of interest and GitLab even lacks the, the discovery ability that you have with GitHub. You do not get kind of random drive-by commits to projects really anywhere else apart from GitHub. This is why people put projects there. I would assume that many people who want to commit to Apache projects will go looking for them, but there are smaller Apache projects that are not so known, so people will find those. So this blog post, of course, is a product announcement, so it's mostly positive. You can do some uh, internet searching around the topic to get some of the more divided opinions. But interesting times. Microsoft now kind of has interests in, <laughs> ironically, a lot of the applications that in years gone by they described as a cancer. Now they kind of maintain the very uh, resources that they run on, which is quite fascinating. And who knows the... the the, uh, the paranoid amongst us might wonder if this is all part of the plan, but who knows. And finally, in the and finally section, this was an article that took me by surprise, and it especially took me by surprise because it maybe made me realize that my own decisions are not the best ones. This was an article on Wired by Katya Moscovich called, Turns out coffee pods are actually pretty good for the environment. This surprised me, no end, <laughs> because we have generally assumed that coffee pods are bad for the environment because of all the waste. 
But turns out this may or may not be true. This is, of course, always it depends. It depends on whose coffee pods, how they're made, etc., etc. For example, the Nespresso ones tend to be better to recycle, but they use a proprietary um, design. And to recycle them, Nespresso have to recycle them. So, you know, you have to kind of follow their pathways to, to be uh, recyclable, which may or may not be possible. And some of the reasoning behind why this may or may not be true is uh, basically around waste. So, for example, instant coffee is the best. It may not taste the best, but you basically put a spoonful in, you add some hot water, and you're done. There is no waste from instant coffee. The process of making the instant coffee can vary, of course. And again, that somewhat depends on um, who's making it and how it's made. But overall, instant coffee is the best. Annoyingly, and this is where I start to wonder about my own life choices, filter and drip coffee are the worst. (laughs) Um, Because there is waste. You often, well, I often put hot water in that I don't need. I throw the ground maybe down the sink, maybe in the bin. I rinse the plunger, etc., etc. You start to see um, what is happening here. I often heat too much hot water for more than I need, etc. And then traditional espresso in machines is the worst, which probably will not surprise you because they're big machines. Especially if you look in a cafe, you see um, a lot of waste in steam and overflow and things like that. With pods second on that list. And this is because capsules tend to use less coffee. This was why I would argue is why they don't taste very good because I find them too weak. And the predominant uh, impact on the environment for coffee is when the coffee is grown. So obviously if you use less of it, then there's less impact. As I mentioned earlier, of course, it always depends. So if you do use drip filter coffee uh, efficiently and effectively, then it isn't so bad. But how many people actually do that, I guess, is the, is the thing. And it'd be the same with making tea, I suppose. If you boil a full kettle for one cup of tea, it's the same problem. So it all comes into just being as effective as you can. Put your coffee grounds in compost, etc., etc. Don't rinse it every time. Um, just leave a little bit of dry coffee in there between use, etc., etc. So interesting. And as always, it depends. Uh, but the actual waste of these uh, pods may or may not be as bad as we initially thought. It, it very much depends what they're made from as well. Um, and actually, ironically, some of the ones that claim to be the most renewable aren't necessarily because uh, you can't necessarily make them out of something completely biodegradable because they might biodegrade in, in storage and in transit. And if you make them fully from aluminium, they can be partially recyclable. Some have plastic and aluminium lids, etc., etc., etc. So it really can depend. So do your research if this is important to you. But yes, Nespresso and various ripoff brands can be smug in their knowledge that while you may not be drinking the best coffee, you may be having a better impact on the environment than all of us coffee snobs initially accused you of. That was my links for the, for the week. And next is my interview with Hayden Barnes of Penguin, talking about their Windows subsystem for Linux, optimized version of Linux. Enjoy. Uh, I'm Hayden, and I created WLinux and the startup around it named Whitewater Foundry. WLinux is now Penguin, 
and it is the first Linux distribution uh, built on and for Windows Subsystem for Linux. Before we dive into more details of what that means, maybe let's uh, clarify for people who don't know, what is the Windows Subsystem for Linux? Okay. The Windows Subsystem for Linux is a translation layer that is built into Windows. It's an optional feature that ships in every version of Windows. And it is uh, similar in some ways to the more popular project, Wine. Mm. Folks may know Wine as uh, a tool to run Windows applications on Linux, Mac OS, uh, FreeBSD. And what Wine does is is a re-implementation of the Windows API, uh, the graphics API, uh, those Windows uh, calls. Mm. WSL is a little lower level than that. In fact, it doesn't implement Linux APIs. It implements individual Linux system calls. So it is the low-level calls that go between the applications and their libraries to the kernel. Those are intercepted by a driver layer that translates them on the fly into NT system calls. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's... You know, Windows and Linux were both built for the uh, x86 platform. So in a lot of cases, those system calls are very similar. Uh, A few require some translation and a few have to be uh, implemented. But thanks to uh, Linus's don't break user space, uh, longstanding policy, the system calls are fairly stable. And, uh, you know, the WSL team at Microsoft have achieved probably 95 to 99 percent compatibility Mm-hmm. with uh, the Linux binaries. So you run those Linux binaries on the console uh, or in a GUI natively on Windows. And you install those and manage the dependencies with a package manager from your choice of Linux distribution, which you can install from the Microsoft Store or sideload uh, build from source. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, it's a, a platform uh to run the Linux console, a bash, you know, or other script or other, uh, you know, command line uh, shell. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it also supports GUI. Uh, if you run an X server um, and, uh, you know, it's designed for developers, yeah. uh, but we've seen a huge uptick among system administrators, power users, you know, people focused on productivity, you know, you can get so much more done on the command line than in a, you know, in a GUI. Mm. Um, so we'll, we'll come back uh, to the, the GUI aspect in a minute because okay. um, Penguin is doing something uh, interesting on that front. Except the moment I, I have experimented with it, I am primarily a Mac user, um, mm-hmm. but I do have a Windows machine as well for testing things. Um, and Linux <laughs> on the same machine. Yeah, um, sure. Up until recently, it had uh, Ubuntu and SUSE available kind of officially, in quote marks, and I guess, as you already said, um, others available from source. I'm not sure if Red Hat or Fedora was in there as well. So uh, there's Debian, there's uh, Ubuntu 16.04, SUSE, OpenSUSE, and SUSE Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um there is now a Fedora distro, Fedora-based distro that we sponsor. There's not an official Fedora uh, distro, but we we have a Fedora-based distro we sponsor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pe- Penguin is yep. uh, 
based on Debian testing, okay. uh, unlike the other one. So you get more modern packages yeah. versus yeah. the standard Debian. Yeah. And then we have Penguin Enterprise. Okay. And that's designed for the enterprise environment. Uh, you can download a demo from the store that's built with Scientific Linux. But it is our uh, custom package to deploy uh, RHEL or Oracle Linux for our enterprise customers in-house. So that's not generally available, uh, but those customers can contact us. But it's funny you mentioned uh, you are a Mac user because so was I. You know, I actually worked at Apple. Uh, I've been um, thinking of, of – I, I am slowly thinking of, of switching, and this is half the reason I'm interested in this subject because um, – Linux doesn't have quite enough graphical applications. Windows isn't yeah. quite good enough for development <laughs> for the things I need. So it's a it's an interesting compromise. But I hit a few problems, which I think Penguin may have solved. We'll, we'll come to in a minute. But um, yeah. yeah, so what, I mean, was, was yours a similar journey there? Well, you know, there's no perfect operating no. system. Every operating system has trade-offs. <laughs> you know, and every operating system you know, either Linux, Windows, or Mac OS is in this weird in-between phase where, you know, there's still these old parts and then there's new parts coming in and they don't exactly match. You know, you've got on Mac OS, you've got the, the standard uh, Cocoa Carbon apps, hmm. and then you've got Marzipan coming in. Uh, with Windows 10, you've still got those old Win32 components left over from Windows 7 hmm. right next to, you know, these beautiful UWP apps. Uh, and don't even get me started about fragmentation on Linux desktop. Oh no, the desktop—it's uh, it's a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, for some people, uh, running Linux on Windows makes sense. Yep. And I used macOS for a long time because it gave me that balance of a uh, Nix terminal with consumer-grade uh, GUI apps like mm. Office mm. and the you know you know support. And, uh, what happened, uh, you know, Apple came out with their new MacBook pros, mm. you know, and I had bought a new MacBook pro every other year for probably a decade. Mm. And, um, it, I just couldn't bring myself. I'm like, you know, the, the price went up, their keyboard problems, the touch bar didn't make any sense to me. And I'm just like, I, I'm just not feeling this Apple hardware anymore. And, <laughs> My friends are said, you know, get get a ThinkPad, get a ThinkPad. I'm like, ThinkPad, what year is it? And it's a Lenovo uh, I went, ThinkPad. That's what year it is. <laughs> yeah, and um, exactly. And I went to the uh, Apple Store and I tried that keyboard, and I'm like, no. And then I went and I tried a, a ThinkPad keyboard, and man, it is just a viscerally pleasing experience to type on this keyboard. <laughs> now, especially now that I have. Uh, mechanical keyboards and yeah, have kind yeah. of like it, it's a nice in between. <laughs> and I tried desktop Linux, you know, for several weeks mm -hmm. and it was fine. It was fine. I could do most of my work just fine, but re but coming over to windows and running Linux and windows side by side, uh, really kind of unlocked everything I was looking for, for my use case. Mm -hmm. And, let's let's just before we first firstly before we turn into another apple rant podcast which there have been quite a few yeah. um and uh, before we get really into penguin i just want to cover one more thing you said earlier which i had actually thought about the comparison because i always thought about them as very different um uh, projects and always kind of a compromise you mentioned wine earlier 
And I, I do remember trying that, um, especially on the, yeah, especially for running Windows applications on Linux. And it, most of the time it didn't really work, to be honest with you. Um, so, I mean, do you consider them a, a, a fair comparison? I, I guess that was unofficially supported. The subsystem is officially supported. Um, do, is Wine still likely to continue with development, or do you think this is more of a uh, the path oh, now for the future? I, you know, I hope Wine continues yeah. development. Uh, you know, in fact, some of our contributors are also contributors to the Wine project. Okay. okay. Um, no Wine. I mean, there's there's technical differences. Wine implements an API. WSL implements a um, you know syscall translation layer. Wine is more of a community project sponsored by um, Code Weavers. You know, WSL yeah, is yeah. Uh, Microsoft and, you know, has support, uh, including Windows Server and mm. long-term service branch. So it, it's different ways to get at the, you know, it's kind of like hyper, you know, we, we're almost competing internally with a Hyper-V on, mm, on mm, Windows. Mm, so mm. What, what we're seeing is a blurring of these operating systems. I mean, yeah. even on a, even on a practical level, the first, the first operating system, your Intel computer boots is Minix, mm. uh, on the IME, uh, built into the hardware, which, you know, loads the boot system and the internal chipset. And then you boot windows and then you boot Linux if you're using WSL. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. so the idea of, uh, basically all of these operating systems becoming kind of runtimes yeah. is, is is coming to fruition i guess effectively for developers especially you're almost also competing with things like docker um mm -hmm. as, as well but obviously you, yeah. it's very transient uh, you lose yeah. state usually that's kind of how it's designed anyway um we're in that we're in that cloud we're kind of on a spectrum <laughs> between docker and and virtual box and hyper yeah. hyper v uh and you know and there's we can't ignore sigwin you know, which is oh, the yeah. classic, classic project, uh, yeah. even older projects like, uh, Unix services for windows, which was officially supported by Microsoft or okay. co-Linux, okay. which was a project back in the day that booted a Linux kernel inside windows. So we, we see ourselves as part of this, this, this tradition and <laughs> this new movement here. Yeah. Uh, you know, so and the, it's funny because the actual, the base technology, of course, it's evolved significantly since then, but the original use for WSL was actually a, an attempt to run Android apps on Windows Phone, ah. to close the app gap on Windows Phone. <laughs> so, it, I mean, and, and, and there was actually an insider version of Windows Phone that shipped that you can, that, that falls off trucks on, online sometimes that you can find and install on an old Lumia if you have one. Um, and, uh, run, uh, but, you know, I, I've always been a operating system fan, you know, yep. using different operating systems, yep. Yep. you know, merging them. Uh, and this just is, was right up my alley. Yeah. Well, let's, so I have experimented a little bit with the subsystem in the past because, um, yeah, my experiments with attempting to use a windows machine instead of my Mac and, hitting those barriers with um, trying to do some open source development and just finding that on Windows it was still very confusing. Uh, you know, things like you very easily on Windows end up with multiple shells and you don't really know what's installed where. 
um, more familiar with Bash than PowerShell. So then you end up with PowerShell and Bash, and then it gets a little confusing. So the subsystem seemed like an interesting, uh, I don't want to say compromise, but an interesting option. But I, I, right. I ran into two issues, and looking down the Penguin feature list, I'm wondering if uh, if it solves them or not. And it has been okay. a little bit of time since I, a couple of months at least, since I last really tried uh, WSL. So maybe it's not Penguin solving these. Maybe it's updates to, to, to the subsystem that solve these. So one was um, one of your features you have works seamlessly between Windows and Linux. So I always remember that in the uh, Linux subsystem, you can access uh, Windows files relatively easily. Uh, mm-hmm. You can find the the Windows drives and access files and things like that. the The aspect I was always trying to do, <laughs> which is where mm-hmm. I got stuck, was the other way round. Um, right. Trying to access Linux files within Windows is that now a possibility, or am I still stuck one way? Yes. So you can now access uh, in. It's coming in nineteen H one, which is the upcoming release of okay. Windows. Okay. And. In your quick access bar in File Explorer on the left, you will now see uh, a Linux and Penguin, okay. you know, a little Penguin logo with a drop down, and you'll be able to see uh, your Linux installations and just go browse directly in File Explorer to your Linux uh, okay. files. Yeah. The, the workaround used to be running Samba inside oh. WSL. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> or 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 S, or using SFFTP to, yeah, yeah. to move back and forth, um, but they've solved that, and they actually solved that using um, a file sharing protocol from Plan Nine. Okay. Uh, so it's 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 getting weird. It's getting fun. Yeah, to, to yeah. actually take take the uh, Plan Nine file sharing uh, components and use it to mesh. Uh, Windows and Linux, and it works. So that's in current Insider builds. Uh, I think you, I think it's even in the slow ring now. Okay. So and here's here's another. I have some very specific uh, things I was trying to solve here. So this might seem okay. like a very Go strange requirement, but do you know if Penguin or uh, or Windows? I guess the um, the the lines are getting a bit blurry on who provides what feature. Will it be possible to to run? any form of Linux executable in Windows directly. As that in... Is crazy talk. <laughs> so, so the use case I was trying to solve was I wanted to run um, a Linux application um, and let Visual Studio Code access it. Okay. I'm guessing that the, from your... Your response is probably crazy talk still. <laughs> so, so, so you can set W. So you can set WSL as your default terminal in Visual Studio Code. Okay. Okay. So that's one one way to get there. Maybe. Um, uh, we'll see. I'll have the, to keep the experimenting. Second, the second way is just to call Penguin.exe with a, a you know on the command prompt with a. Um, uh, with an argument to run whatever command you need yeah. run in the subsystem. Yeah. So there's ways to get there. 
Okay. I'll have to have another experiment when I get back. I'm, I'm on my Mac whilst we're traveling, so I'll have to wait till I get my Windows machine. Otherwise, I'll just have so many layers of virtualization it'll be. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and the way you just described the, the sharing that's coming reminds me a little bit of, um, I don't know if you ever use Parallels on the Mac. They do oh, yeah. some reasonably nice work on making the experience more seamless. Uh, it's a commercial application, um, but you can even do things like uh, use Mac services to, in quote marks, open a web page in Edge or Internet Explorer. Obviously, it has to boot mm-hmm. Windows and all that kind of thing, but still. Right. <laughs> just, but you see them kind of on your desktop. Um, so we're is, getting we're getting there. Yeah. We we package a set of tools with uh, Penguin, and we make these available for the other WSL distros okay. on our repo server okay. uh, called uh, WSL Utilities, and yeah. one of those is WSL View. Ah, uh, so that's like and, Parallels Utilities. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and yeah. WSL View. Uh, if you run it, will open that whatever file you're referring to uh, or web page in Windows. Okay. So, okay. you know, if, right. if you're if you're running, uh, you know, a, a web app, you know, on on WSL, and you just need to open it real quick from the command line mm, mm. Uh, in, in in the new Chromium Edge, you just WSL view website, and it launches. Uh, your website in Edge. So okay. we're we're getting there. Uh, okay. It's still early. Yeah, no, early for on. Sure, yeah. And the other, so the other uh, barrier I hit was the uh, area of GUIs. Now, you've already okay. mentioned that, of course, when it comes to Linux, GUIs is not one thing. Um, right. With Mac and Windows, it's still not quite one thing, but there's certainly less <laughs> than, than Linux. Yeah. Um, you know, you have so many windowing managers and so many. Uh, like GUI libraries for creating interfaces. Um, it's always been a bit of an issue I found with Linux. Like you have something beautifully designed like elementary OS, but then as soon mm-hmm. as you get out of their default applications, it just looks like something else. So it becomes very disconcerting very quickly. Right Now, you do say in the in the feature list many Linux GUI applications. <laughs> right. But I'm still, I'm still assuming that's going to be a a limited list and I'm guessing for resource reasons as well. Um, that may be more limiting. Okay. So let's, so, okay. Go back to my use case. Could I run Visual Studio K code for Linux in Penguin on Windows? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. Okay. Now to be fair, it breaks occasionally. Sure. But sure. yes. Okay. Uh, so one of the ways we solve this, you know, you primarily on Linux have JTK and mm-hmm. you know, Qt. So one of the things we do is if you use Penguin setup uh, and go to the GUI section, we offer to just go ahead and install a base layer of GUI libraries, okay. the most common GUI libraries. And then we offer to install a unified uh, JTK and Qt uh, theme either light or dark mode to mm-hmm. match windows to okay. the best of nice. our abilities. The issues running GUI apps, uh, tend to be dependencies, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes mm-hmm. hard system D dependencies, mm-hmm. uh, and graphics acceleration, mm-hmm. um, because graphics acceleration currently isn't available on WSL. Yep. Um, but in terms of running gnome builder, uh, you know, several, uh, genie is a very common, mm-hmm. uh, popular, um, Emacs, the, the GUI version, um, 
all of those are available and, and run just fine. So it's really focused on development yeah, tools. For sure. yeah. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't run Steam no, on no, Linux. No, no. <laughs> uh, I can't even get Steam to run in Windows on an emulator. So, <laughs> so I wouldn't. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, okay. Yeah. Um, and I guess again, in the very near future, although at the moment, I suppose you still have that one way sync as well. If I do a file open from that graphical application, I can access my windows files as well. Yep. 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 I mean, let's go crazy. Could I use something like open office? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, You can run. Yeah, sure. Okay. So just anything that isn't too graphic intensive, basic office, um, well, anything that, anything that doesn't anything that doesn't need 3D graphic acceleration. Okay. So if it's if it's something that would benefit from an accelerator card, yeah. um, it's going to be slow. Yeah. But yeah. The, the thing is, WSL when you load WSL, the translation layer is already running. Okay. So and has a very minimal footprint. And when you launch Penguin, you're only launching Bash. So in yeah. terms of resources, yeah. you're using, I think, like minimal. eight nine megabytes of RAM. Yeah. yeah. So it's not so much a resource limitation. It's, uh, you know, to be honest right now, it's a little bit of a file IO limitation. And that's mm. because windows, def- that's because windows defender is active oh, okay. in inside WSL. And if you have a, you know, compromised uh, node module, that's, you know, going to just, you, you know, has been hacked to mine Bitcoin mm. uh, defender will defender will pick it up mm. and, and, and block access to it. Uh, but I do know that the WSL team is working really hard on improving uh, performance on file IO. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in terms of CPU, just pure CPU, uh, CPU performance, uh, some of the Pharonix uh, benchmarks put uh, WSL head to head, if not ahead of bare metal Linux. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And coming back, so this is actually mostly aimed at developers. I mean, I can't imagine who else would need to run Linux on a Windows machine, maybe some yeah, administrative stuff. Sysadmins, Sys developers, admins, some students, students maybe. Yeah. I do remember yeah. having, but I went to uni a long time ago. So quite, I think there was, yeah. you know, actually I think this is even before Linux. Um, so you also have this very useful Penguin setup tool for installing uh, some, some fundamental kind of programming language runtimes, Python, Go, Ruby, Node, PowerShell, Azure, Cloud Tools, among others. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm guessing that's installing Debian packages, and is that installing the optimal Debian packages? I know, like for example, Node is often uh, not always up to date in uh, right. some Linux packages and things like that. So are you running the default ones, or are you running optimized ones there? We're running. Uh, we're running N, giving folks okay. the option. Okay. So we we what we're trying to do is just build the take the best in class of mm. each tool chain mm. and then give users a starting point. So we, in some cases we use the Debian testing packages. And mm-hmm. in some cases we use, uh, like for Ruby, we use RB ENV okay. um, yep. Yep. and yep. other tools like that. And, you know, some of these, uh, are easy, are, would it, you would install just like you would on a Linux machine. And then mm-hmm. others need tweaks and workarounds to work correctly on WSL and we just build those in. All of those optimizations are, are baked in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And does that uh, setup tool also, one of the other features you list is uh, web servers and database servers. 
Um, does that tool also help with those or are they separate things like uh, Apache and MySQL? And- so uh, we are working towards a basically one-click LAMP stack that's okay. coming. Okay. Uh, we currently offer an SSH server and the option to use rc.local to start services mm-hmm. on launch. Um, so you can now install Apache and add it to rc.local and have it launch on mm-hmm. start. Um, but we haven't fully fleshed that out completely okay. yet. Okay. And I guess uh, relating a little bit to some of my earlier questions, if I install Node in Penguin and a whole bunch of NPM um, modules, etc., um, I could access those in Windows using some of the methods that you described mm-hmm. earlier and remove probably like one of the many node installations I may have on my Windows machine. <laughs> yeah, you actually, we, we've run into some issues recently with uh, node on Windows yeah. in path conflicting yeah. with uh, WSL because the path is shared. The path environment okay. is shared yeah. in both. So sometimes if people will have multiple installations, it can cause issues, but we're working on it. Okay. Okay. So you mentioned you have a, a kind of a default in quote marks version, which um, just to, this may surprise, maybe a shock for open source people, but costs currently uh, $10 on $9.99, um, yep. $10 discount right now. So jump in. Um, yep. <laughs> but you said you have an enterprise version as well. So what's the, what's the difference? So uh, the difference is the enterprise version is custom built for enterprise customers. So enterprise customers come to us. Sometimes they have air gap, they have air gap networks. They need specific Python, uh, uh, tool chains, you know, depending on their deployment, a lot of them are using satellite and, um, you know, or spacewalk to manage. And the great thing is, is we can take their existing windows and Linux endpoint infrastructure and, and merge them into a custom image for those customers. Now we do make a demo build of Penguin Enterprise available uh, in the store. We don't make a lot of noise about it. Mm -hmm. It's built with scientific Linux, Mm -hmm. uh, which is derived from uh, CentOS. Mm -hmm. And uh, it doesn't have nearly the optimization or the customization. I mean, it is very raw. It is meant Mm -hmm. for people who just really want to be able to run a CentOS distro on their uh on wsl yep okay and so as far as i can tell uh with whitewater this is mostly what you do you also have this fedora remix for wsl as well um Mm -hmm. so what's the what's the history behind the the company uh when did you start working on penguin and and why i guess so uh i started working on what was then w linux um I had been experimenting with um, WSL after I made the switch to a ThinkPad and mm-hmm. wanted to give WSL a shot. And I wanted to see what it could do. And I was installing lots of things and breaking lots of things and having to reset the app. And every time I reset the app, I had to go in and manually or eventually wrote a script that put all my you know, optimi- WSL optimizations in place. Combine that with bugs we started i started encountering and documenting and reporting upstream to distros that will go unnamed and basically we were told we don't care mm. you know this is a limited you know go tell microsoft well mm-hmm. microsoft isn't going to patch a bug in uh 
a distro package. Well, so we decided maybe, but yeah, we'll see. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but you know, so it was a combination of wanting to experiment with WSL, yeah. break it, be able to reset it and have sane defaults out of the box. And then combine that with a community and support focused specifically on WSL mm-hmm. that, that put WSL users first and that, you know, we actually built it in such a way that so that you can build Penguin on Penguin. It is a self-hosting operating system. <laughs> so you can build the image and install it from itself. Mm. So it's not it's not just a culling of Linux tools. You know, it is a functional distribution minus the kernel. <laughs> and I'm guessing um that this is a relatively new project, but um, yeah. So let me, let me pick back up. Yeah. Uh, so that started. That was about eight nine months ago, mm-hmm. and okay. um, I pushed that out, and I didn't think anyone would care, and I didn't think anyone would uh, buy it, and it has been quite popular, and people have been willing to pay ten bucks, mm-hmm. and we quickly established we quickly established a, a team of people who kind of gravitated to mm-hmm. the project. Uh, we hired them on. Uh, we then got approached by uh, Enterprise, who mm-hmm. wanted to be able to run uh, Rail-based uh, Linux distros. So we developed the Penguin Enterprise solution for them. It's not just it's not its own distro; it's a package solution um, because they they often need deployment consulting and service level mm-hmm. agreements. Mm-hmm. And then the Fedora community uh, was missing a distro from the. Uh, Microsoft store. And, um, there were legal issues that, that prevented that mm-hmm. from happening. Uh, and that, you know, may change in the future. Uh, you know, we kind of hope it does, mm-hmm. but Fedora, Fedora members, members of the Fedora community came to us and said, can you do this? And we said, yes, actually our software that runs W Linux or then W Linux enterprise now penguin enterprise mm-hmm. runs Fedora. Because it's, Fedora is just upstream, right? Mm. Uh, so we packaged and make Fedora Remix uh, for WSL available under the Fedora Remix program. It is not Fedora; it is Fedora Remix. Mm. You know, there's specific criteria we have to follow mm-hmm. uh, in order to use that special mark. And we make that available as a community service. It's less expensive, mm. and it's also available for um, other places online for free. So. We will make a lot of revenue on that one. Uh, that's more of a community service. Uh, but the reason you, know, you, you touched on something uh, that's probably going to be of interest is that uh, the idea of paying for open source software. And um, we, we, I knew that would be controversial. Um, but I remember when I started on Linux, uh, you know, you would you would you would pay for it. You know, I, I paid fifty bucks for my first version of Red Hat. Uh, I remember getting like an 11 CD set of SUSE uh, from, you know, and I, you, you bought it and you got support for it. Yeah. And think there's a, you know, once it became possible to easily download ISOs uh, to install, you know, yourself, it kind of, especially when Ubuntu started just mailing out yeah. CDs like, yep. a, like AOL, like AOL used to <laughs> the idea of getting, getting a free, I'm aging myself. A free oh, no, I remember uh, it too, <laughs> distro, um, and I, I think the problem with that is that 
the people who pay for products are going to get their needs addressed first. Mm. Right now, the majority of people paying for Linux are enterprise mm, mm. and they're praying, they're paying for, uh, enterprise features mm. and, you know, enterprise actually like system D mm. they do system D is super easy. And that's why system D is where it is mm-hmm. because enterprise likes it and paid for it. And they're the ones who are putting money into Linux distros. And there's a, there's a place for community and volunteer distros, but you know, you look at what elementary is able to do with everything they do by having a pay what you want model. Mm -hmm. And I think open source, especially when it comes to maintaining projects over long periods of time, I think the idea of paying small sums of money, uh, or building from source for yourself is something that the open source community needs to move towards if we want tools that are made for us that aren't tied to big corporate platforms and don't die in two years or something like that as well. Exactly. I, I I want, I think the, the, the first wave of open source were independent hackers. Mm. The second wave was enterprise. And I want to see the third wave be small projects, uh, who, who are willing to, you know, who are brave enough to charge and say, we have a product here. You can look at the source, but if you want to buy into this community, this project, get support, form this kind of ongoing contract between the two of us, mm. you're, you're, you're going to pay something. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we've been pretty successful. We're able to, uh, hire, uh, four full-time, uh, oh, wow. I mean, okay. four, devs um and for some of them it's a side gig for some of them it's their full-time job it varies uh we work out arrangements um and i tell people this you come to the project and you contribute and you add value um we pay you Mm. you know you you don't have to go through an obnoxious interview process yeah i i think i think that's it sounds like a very um I guess even with Windows, even a, a niche use case of Windows is still a very large user base. So, <laughs> you know, and and something something like fifty percent of Windows PCs are still running Windows Seven. So yeah. we think we have a lot of upward, you know, trajectory in yeah. terms of pickup. And you know, once once users once WSO users find out about us unless they have a specific reason to stick to what they're on, mm. they tend to make the move because they know, uh, that they're, you know, investing in the platform. There's a company here and it's staffed and they're supporting other WSL hackers and mm. upstream mm. projects. So we, we've, we put patches, uh, you know, we've got bug reports and patches that go up into upstream projects. So, I mean, if you're demoing Fedora 30 uh, beta, um, there's patches in there that uh, you know that we help make happen. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're running Windows, <laughs> there's patches in there too. Uh, we we work with everyone to mm-hmm. to make this work. So the final question then on that tra- trajectory with the uh, with uh, the the team you have in place, what's on the roadmap for the next six months? Say. So we're going to continue. Um, so we just deployed uh, 1.2, which 
moved everyone from basically an update system based on GitHub to yeah. our own uh, CI, CD, continuous improvement, continuous deployment uh, app repo. Mm -hmm. So this has allowed us to basically put feature deployment in hyperdrive. Mm -hmm. And we are rolling out uh, new features basically every two weeks. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we are adding more and more features. Uh, we are going to build more capacity as Penguin Enterprise deployments uh, pick up. Mm -hmm. uh, th those are becoming, you know, we're getting approached by, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of enterprise prefer Windows for their endpoints because they know how to lock it down. Yeah. And now they want to be able to lock down WSL two. Yeah. And and we can provide that. Yeah. Um, there's some other opportunities in this space that we're pursuing uh, that you should watch our uh, presentation at Microsoft Build to get a glimpse of. So, so we'll we'll be there. We'll be talking cross-platform development um, and uh, DevOps, and we'll be showing off things you can do. You know, we're going to build the same C app in Linux and Windows, and show <laughs> that you can run them side by side. Uh, we're going to deploy uh, a container. Uh, we're going to write a Linux app. We're going to deploy it uh, to uh, the cloud. We're going to deploy it to Windows. We're going to yeah. deploy it to Linux, yeah. all from the same same you know console. Cool. Um, so we've got some cool demos coming up, and uh, we might we might show off something at build. We'll see. <laughs> You're going to be so, running Steam for Linux in uh, no. <laughs> oh yeah, no, right. You know, and and you know, admittedly, we're we're kind of in a tough spot because we're between these big corporate giants and, yeah. and building this community. And the good news is we have really great relationships with these teams, and you know, we 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 work closely with their technical folks. We we we're knowledgeable about the roadmaps uh, coming down the line. So. Uh, we can do things um, to really make this great. But uh, if you're coming to build, find us. We've got stickers. I don't know if this will be out but, but before then. Uh, but you can also request a sticker on our website. Uh, and um, yeah, so uh, if you're interested in getting involved, uh, we welcome uh, that. Uh, helpful issues um, that you open on GitHub. Uh, you're welcome to do a drive-by commit. Uh, those are welcome. If you want to get involved in the long term, uh, you're more than welcome. So we, we need all the help we can get, you know, and it's open source that you can get paid to do. That was my interview with Hayden Barnes. Hope you enjoyed that. It was an interesting discussion. Um, we had a little bit of everything to please all podcast audiences in there. Open source, Apple bashing computer history, everything that you could possibly need. If you've enjoyed the show, you can find the previous episodes at christianjiller.com slash podcast. You can also support the show at christianjiller.com slash support. You can find my newsletters that accompany this podcast at christianjiller.com slash newsletters. And you can also tweet at me at Chris Chinch. Please give me any feedback on any of those locations or in comments wherever you have found this podcast. Please share if you've enjoyed and until next time, when I will have an interview with uh, Netlify as well for the next episode, if you have been, thank you very much for listening. Yeah.